every week. Today we are talking about everything you never knew you wanted to know about Japanese food. And we actually did something pretty exciting last night. Uh, Rachel, do you want to talk about where we went? What we did? Are you sure you want to get me started? We may be here, you know, till next year. We may end up just doing the entire episode about this. So last night, you and I met up in LA for what was advertised as a nine course sustainable sushi meal. And I think it ended up being more like 12 courses. 11 (laughs) courses. Yeah. Yeah. And it was put on by Kasten Trenner and his two business partners who run the Tataki sushi bar chain. Which is based in San Francisco. Yes. And it was incredible. Yeah. Kassin, um, well, Tataki and Mindshare, which is this organization in LA that puts together talks every week or every month, I'm not sure, but on a fairly regular basis, put this thing together at this place called the Butterfly Project, which is this awesome loft in LA, and set up this dinner, which was all sustainable seafood. And it was amazing. And they did this because they want to bring Tataki to LA. Tataki is a sustainable sushi restaurant. Um, actually, the chain is a sustainable sushi restaurant in um, San Francisco. And they'd like to have a Los Angeles location as well. And so we're really excited about this. We really yeah, want we them want to them out. to have it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there like it's every just- month. Yeah, it's just very exciting what they're doing. And um, and actually, I think we're going to be, in the near future, we're going to be talking to Cass and he's going to be coming on to talk about sustainable sushi and some of those issues, right? Yeah, we're definitely going to have Cass and on. Um, I've known him for a few years, so I will nag him until he talks to us. Um, and then hopefully also a few other people that we met last night. So yeah, it was, it was was a really fun evening. There were just 20 guests. So you and I had two of the spots and and then son who came with us Mm -hmm. out of 20. So it was a special evening, special food, special topic and good company. Yeah. A lot of cool people were there. It was a lot of fun and delicious. Yeah. And kind of the perfect segue into our topic for this episode. Yes, we are talking about sushi, but more specifically, we are talking about a sushi movie that just came out. Which is the other cool thing that we've done recently. (laughs) Yeah, we are just on a roll lately. We are rocking it. So yeah, so last Friday, you and I went to, with our significant others, went to the opening day in LA of the documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Right. It opened at the New Art Theater in Santa Monica last Friday. No, two Fridays ago. 
on the 16th. Time flies. Yeah. L.A. was one of the first places where I opened. So if you're not in L.A., we will have a link to the website, and you can go there and look and see when it opens in a theater near you, because I know there are a lot of other openings that are happening in the next few weeks. So you should definitely go see it. Yeah, make sure you check that out. It won't be in theaters as long as a traditional feature because, you know, it's a smaller release documentary, but it is so worth making the effort to get out and see it. So Jiro Dreams of Sushi is all about a man named Jiro Ono, who many people consider to be the world's greatest sushi chef. He is 85 years old, and he has a very small 10-seat restaurant called Tsukiyabashi Jiro, which is located in the basement of a Tokyo subway station, which is a really odd place for a restaurant that has three Michelin stars, but you know it's got to be really, really good if it's that much out of the way and has that high of a rating. Yeah, and it's not surprising to know that it was the first of its kind to be awarded three Michelin stars. I mean, you have got to be really something special to be located in a subway station, have 10 seats, you know, just really not what you're thinking of when you think of location, location, location. (laughs) Jiro has been making sushi his entire life, literally his entire life. He started when he was about 10, I think. So given that he's 85 years old now, that's 75 years of making sushi every single day. Yeah, try and invest that. I mean, yeah, he at the age of nine, he was basically kicked out of his home. His parents could not, this was right before World War II, if I'm remembering correctly, and his parents could no longer support him. And so he was left to fend for himself. So he had to find a way to make a living. (laughs) And uh, at the age of 10, I think started apprenticing and has been dedicating his every waking moment basically to it ever since and not only his waking moments he's been dedicating his sleeping moments to it as well I mean, that's yes why. <laughs> which i love that <laughs> and that's that's why it's called jiro dreams of sushi is because something he said in the movie was that he really does dream of sushi he'll assign himself problems of things that he thinks he can improve in his um, in his restaurant every night before he goes to sleep. And then he'll dream about it and come up with new ideas while he's sleeping, which I think is just ridiculous. I love it. But that's dedication. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just, it's just artistry. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why he is the world's greatest sushi chef. He always believes that there's more you, he can be doing to reach perfection he just doesn't feel like he has ever reached perfection Mm -hmm. so there's always something he can improve and he's always like you said assigning himself a problem figuring out ways to make things better and even more amazing it's really inspiring it really is and and seeing how much he has dedicated all of himself to his work well and for me it also really highlights the difference between the Japanese sushi culture and the American sushi culture. Definitely. I mean, here, I would not say that we don't have any good sushi chefs, 
But we, the majority of quote-unquote sushi chefs here, Jiro would not consider to be sushi chefs. Just because, I mean, anybody, like, I could go and open a sushi restaurant right now and call myself a sushi chef if I wanted to. I would not think it was the right thing to do. I mean, I definitely would not consider myself qualified to be a sushi chef. But, you know, realistically, if I wanted to, yeah, sure, I could go do that here. And it's such a different culture over there. Like, I could never do that. I would have to apprentice for a very long time if I wanted to even have the chance to be considered a sushi chef. Right. And if you want to learn from Jido, it's a 10-year apprenticeship. And here, depending on the type of program you go through, it's comparatively much, much shorter, you know, one to two years. And much much less rigorous. Mm -hmm. And I guess I've been thinking about this, and part of it is, I think, the focus on what sushi is about in each of the two locations. Here in the U.S., I feel that a lot of the big focus in sushi is on the rolls. And it's all these crazy concoctions, you know, what you're putting into that roll and these fancy names and the presentation and what sauces, you know, are going on it and all this stuff that ultimately it takes creativity and some basic skills, but not necessarily the type of skills that are going to require you 10 years to perfect. And the other thing is here... There's a lot of what we do is good enough, so there's no need to improve it. You know, everybody does a California roll. Okay, I can make a California roll. It's good enough. You know, I don't need to obsess about it to make it better. There's so much less of that drive to to make it the most amazing California roll that has ever been made. Mm -hmm. And and that's what people like Jiro live for every day. Right. And I think... I mean, I, I know in the movie, he kind of scoffs at the idea of roles, but I think here, it's, it's not, what am I trying to say? Roles are not necessarily bad. I think if somebody took the drive and the passion that Jiro has about his sushi and applied that to Maki roles, I think they could be amazing and it could be an incredible restaurant but the thing is nobody really most people really don't do that it's kind of okay what kind of random sauces can i throw on it how many different you know a bazillion kinds of fish i can put on it and i think they're the difference too we we saw highlighted last night with the delicate hand that the tataki team had with the rolls that they made because we did try was it three rolls Their focus was so much more on balancing flavors and textures and really making, having everything make sense. Right. And that's what I love about Tataki and about also Mishiko in Seattle, another sustainable sushi restaurant, that they really pay attention to their ingredients and how the ingredients go together and what complements each other and What's the best way to use these ingredients to make them taste good, taste their best, even if they are using it in a roll or in a quote-unquote non-traditional sushi application? Yeah, because what drives me crazy, and I know what drives sushi, some sushi aficionados crazy, is 
this is the concept of loading it all up with stuff, a roll with stuff, because if you've got fish in there, the, the fish is going to be a lot more delicate. And what's the point of it having it in there and spending the money on that piece of quality fish if you're just going to co- cover up its subtleties with this sauce or sauces? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that just shows a lack of understanding of the product you're working with and its potential. Exactly. And that's kind of why I feel like a lot of sushi chefs here could never achieve the quality that, or even close to what Jiro has, or even what Japanese standards are. But I mean, yeah, there so are definitely exceptions to the rule. Tataki is an exception. I mean, there are some very, very good sushi restaurants here in the U.S. But I mean, I'm just thinking like I can walk down the street and see four different sushi restaurants. I mean, I literally can walk down the street and there are four different sushi restaurants, and. Looking at those kinds of restaurants, I think I have more of, I don't know, just don't have the quality that I want to see in sushi. Well, and here's what I'm thinking. You and I both are completely capable of sitting down and whipping out rolls and whatever. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to what a really talented, skilled, knowledgeable sushi chef can do that I can't do. Let's talk about what some of those things are that distinguish and what make that knowledge so special. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause when it comes to like the biochemical changes that, that happen in the flesh of an animal after it's killed, mm-hmm. I'm going to be relatively clueless, you know, to know the different stages of what's happening in the musculature and the, fl- you know, the, right, the right. different parts of the fish, you know, when the fish is going to be at its most supple, What when the flavor is going to change. Because all of those things, all those changes that an animal goes through after death affects the flavor and the texture. Mm-hmm. A good sushi chef is going to have that knowledge for each animal, right. for each species that it works with, because it's it, or that they work with. It's mm-hmm. going to be different. And it may be different with different factors in place, you know, different seasons and, you know, depending on the size of the animal. And when it comes to to seafood, you've got parasite concerns and knowing which which types of seafood you need to be aware of that and how to deal with it is also an issue, you know. Mm-hmm. There are just so, so many things that I know I don't know and I would never pretend to be an expert on. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of those things that you just need years of experience in order to be able to truly understand what's going on with the product that you're using. Jiro obviously has that, and I think probably, I don't know, 99% of people who call themselves sushi chefs here in the U.S. don't have that. For sure. And I think the movie's really amazing in that it really highlights that because... Mm-hmm. It shows that on a day-to-day basis, there are no hard and fast, true hard and fast rules. They have that same cut of fish, maybe, but it needs to spend another day aging because it's, you know, just, it's just not there. And they have to use the skills that they've developed to kind of, to know and have some instinct about it. They're just to know how it feels, how it tastes when it's at its best and what it needs in order to become its best. Right. 
there are so many variables that general rules, they're just, they're just not helpful. It, it just comes from lots of trial and error and, and being around tons and tons of seafood, doing it over and over and over again to really learn and develop instinct. And that, you know, the whole 10 year apprenticeship thing starts to make a lot of sense. It really does. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about a lot of people, since I have a sushi website, will come up to me and be like, oh, you should be a sushi chef. You obviously know so much about sushi. And especially when I see something like Judo Dreams of Sushi, I can say for sure that I definitely don't. I mean, I've only been doing this for almost six years and not even close to what he makes his apprentices do, which, by the way, is ridiculous. Would kick my butt in a single day. What, you mean massaging an octopus for 45 minutes? I think I'd make it about five hard? minutes. Hard? <laughs> before my arms fall off, flopping around on the floor. But see, and this is slightly off topic, but to defend your honor, <laughs> I look at what you do as bridging the gap. I think it is incredibly important to educate people. And I think when you learn a skill, you learn how some of these things are made, you can make them some of these things yourself. Then when you go into a sushi bar and you have an incredible meal, you're understanding what you're eating and why that meal is so incredible a whole heck of a lot more than if you don't understand the process. Right. I mean, that is what I try to do. I mean, that's been my goal this entire time is just making sushi accessible to everybody. But when you look at someone like me, you've got to have so much respect for the people who actually are sushi chefs and who have put in the work and the years and have the experience to be able to do that. I mean, I am in so much awe of anyone who is truly qualified to consider themselves a sushi chef. Yeah, I mean, you really have to dedicate yourself to that specific area of knowledge mm-hmm. to truly be great. Right. Exactly. Jiro Dreams of Sushi was directed by a man named David Gelb, and he has been passionate about sushi his entire life. I mean, he's, from the things that I've read, I recently read something, and I don't know if this was something that you sent me or if I just saw it elsewhere, but I read that he had lived in Japan for a certain amount of time when he was very, very young, when he was about kind of like Squirrel, how she lived there when she was very, very young, and so she developed a taste for it. Mm-hmm. He, um, when they came back to the U.S., he would throw tantrums if his mother would not give him cucumber rolls. Because that was what she fed him when he when they were living in Japan. Um, totally sounds like squirrel, except her <laughs> her tantrum food is onigiri. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of you guys when I read that, and I was like, oh. Yeah. So she does she does love cucumber rolls. I mean, Don't come on, her. who doesn't? They're yeah. delicious. <laughs> so I mean, from a very very young age, he has loved sushi. So as a filmmaker, he wanted to make a movie about the world's best sushi chefs. And originally he had, his idea was to do it on the four best sushi chefs in the world. But then he went to Japan, he went to Tokyo, and 
met Jiro and ate his sushi with a uh, food critic, Masuhiro Yamamoto, who... He was the one in the movie, right? Yes. Okay, so he's known Jiro and been eating at his restaurant for very many years. Very familiar with Jiro's sushi. So I guess he took David Gelb to Jiro's restaurant, and David Gelb immediately knew that to heck with this four sushi chef thing, he was going to do his movie just on Jiro. And once you've seen the movie, you understand why. I mean, I think Jiro's passion for the craft is infectious and inspiring. And the movie could potentially be, I mean, it is a documentary, so it could potentially be very dry. But you, I think David Gelb's passion for the subject really comes through through his his approach to it. Because he does such a beautiful job of telling Jiro's story and also capturing the the production yeah the production of sushi and and how they they have this whole section um uh, where uh Yamamoto the the food critic talks about a great meal being like a symphony and how Jiro has over the years developed a way of ser- serving sushi that is that is like that traditional multi-course meal you know with different like an overture and uh, all these different parts of an orchestra or of a symphony. And David Gelb just does such a beautiful job of kind of interweaving that aspect of it into the movie that you really understand that and visually and thematically. I just, I, it, it's just really striking. And yeah, the food porn. Wow. Gosh. I mean, it is literally impossible to come out of that movie not wanting sushi. It was actually really funny. So many that was one of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah, when we walked out of the theater, everybody around us, I mean, how many times did we hear, so are we going to go get sushi? <laughs> At least four or five times. Like Everybody was, was talking about how they needed to go eat sushi, like, right that minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you cannot come out of that movie and not want sushi. You are immersed in the most delicious looking film clips of sushi my mouth yeah. is watering just thinking about it i know i know it's just so excited about the craft too mm-hmm. i mean it's just like for me i just wanted nothing more than to go pull up a seat at a sushi bar and and watch someone make me something delicious and then stick it in my mouth like i just <laughs> just makes you want to be part of the process. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad we got sushi last night. Oh, I know. I've been, I was dying ever since seeing the movie, so it was mm-hmm. good. Good that we remedied that. <laughs> One thing that, that I loved that they touched on, although it was really brief in the movie, was the aspect of the story where Jiro talks about how it's getting harder and harder to find some of the things that he used to be able to find very easily. I loved that part of the movie because that's something that when he was talking about how we need to take care of the oceans and that's something that you don't hear a lot of sushi chefs talking about a lot of people are just like well my customers want it so I'm going to make it, it makes me money so I'm going to get all the bluefin that I can and yeah and here's this man right here's this man who is so dedicated to 
the quality and perfection of his craft. And it's so much easier to see the correlation, you know, of the sustainability issue through the eyes of someone like him, you know, where it's just here, we could get all this stuff so easily and now we can't or, and now the, the tuna are like half the size of what they used to be because they, they require a certain number of years to develop in size and we're just fishing them too quickly. And so, you know, they're just small because the populations don't have time to develop and, you know, just all these changes. Mm -hmm. He was saying something about how the way that they catch the tuna catches the baby ones too. So that, or not the baby, but like the really small ones as well. So they don't have time to develop. And he's, he was saying, we need to just catch the big ones and give the little ones time to grow. On the one I mean, hand, that I requires say, no bluefin, don't eat bluefin at all. But on the other hand, that's a much better solution than just eating everything you can and fishing right. for everything you can. E- even then, it still requires a big change because uh, with that policy, a lot of the fishing industry will have to change its methods. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to be, you know, you cannot be using a system where there's going to be bycatch. Right, exactly. And back to sustainability, I think that's a big reason why it's such a problem is because the industry does not want to change the way that they've always done it. You know, they don't want to have to get the new equipment, and and I'm sure it is also probably expensive for them to get to completely change the way that they do things. Well, in some of these methods, they're sure heck of a lot easier because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're you're fishing in bulk instead Mm -hmm. of... It takes more work to, to do the work one by one, one fish at a time, you know. Exactly. And time is money, right? <laughs> yeah. And also, if they're doing it one by one instead of a bazillion at a time, they have less to sell as well. Right. So that's also money, which, of course, everybody wants more money. So it's it's a very complicated issue. I mean, it's, it's not as easy as just saying, you fishermen need to change your ways. There's, we need to change our ways, too. There's a lot behind it. We need to stop having demand for... Right. I mean, if, we, if we're if we able to change our demands, mm-hmm. there's no reason for them to go out and continue exactly. the way they're fishing. Exactly. But if there's a demand for it, there are going to be people that are going to fulfill those demands. Though I did love getting to see some of the different purveyors that Gino works with that won't sell to just anybody where it's not about money. It's Mm -hmm. about they too are dedicated to their craft. Right. It's about selling to somebody who can really appreciate the ingredients that they're getting. Yeah. Like the guy he buys his rice from who Mm -hmm. won't sell to what was the, the hotel chain that wanted to buy his rice? The Hyatt? Yeah. I mean, it's like a respectable hotel chain, but he will not sell to them because he says it's wasted on them. They will not this is difficult type of rice to cook. Yes, it's the best, but they don't know how to cook it. So it's lost on them. Yeah. And, but I loved how he said, but if Jiro tells me to sell it to them, I will. And he's like, I'm not going to tell you to sell. <laughs> I mean, they have real respect for each other's knowledge and, and dedication to their crafts. I mean, it's, yeah. it's inspiring. I really love that part of it. I loved the rice is. guy. <laughs> he was so drunk. He was bright red. Yeah. He was so endearing. <laughs> yeah. And then, was it the tuna guy? 
I was like, oh, I'm so honored that, that Jiro likes the way that I do it because the way I do things is not how everybody else does. It's not the traditional way to do it. Yeah, he was like, what did he say? Anti, uh... Anti-establishment? Anti-establishment, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Which is actually very unique for a Japanese person. <laughs> so, it's quite impressed with that. Like we said, the movie is out now. So, well, it's out for us now. It may be out near you or be coming to a theater near you very soon. So check the website. Our show notes will have a link to the website for Jiro Dreams of Sushi. So you can go see if there is a theater near you where you can go see it. And you really should go see this. I mean, if if you're listening to go this podcast, yeah. you obviously like Japanese food, I hope. Or you just like to listen to us go on. But, you know, that's cool, too. <laughs> But, but seriously, you will fall in love with sushi all over again. And I think it will help you appreciate some of the sushi that seems simple. And really, I think some of the most simple seeming sushi is the most elegant and difficult to, to pull off. I think you'll appreciate that more after seeing it. So it's so worth it. Okay, so that being said, we're done yakking about it. You need to just now go and see the movie. But... You can always come back to connect with us. And we actually have a new way for you to come connect with us. We have a phone number that you can call in and leave us a message, whether it be questions about Japanese food, whether you have comments about our podcast, or if you just want to talk about some sort of Japanese food that you love or about anything that we've mentioned on the podcast. Or any interesting experiences. We like stories. Mm -hmm. We love it. And even though we do love talking to each other, the real reason we're doing this is to share with you and get you excited about Japanese food. So if there is a topic that you want to learn about or hear us talk about, we would be ecstatic if you would drop us a line and let us know what that is. And who knows, maybe we'll use that on the podcast. So you never know, you could be on our podcast with us. So if you want to call in, our number is 657-4-MISOFI. That's 657-464-7639. And we would love to hear from you. So call us. We're really excited about our phone number. Come be our first caller. But if you don't want to call us or if you want to connect with us, and call us, there are always other ways that you can contact us. We are on Twitter, at MisoTalk. We have a Facebook fan page. You can email us at MisoHungryPodcast at gmail.com. You can find our episodes, our taco tidbits, our show notes, and a little information about us on our website, MisoFi.com. That's M-I-S-O-F-Y dot com. And if you'd like to leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes, it means so much to us. Every little rating, every little review helps. Um, helps us get out to more people. So if you could do that for us, we would appreciate it so much. So come contact us. We'd love to hear from you.
I'm Allison Day. And I'm Rachel Hutchings. And you've been listening to the Miso Hungry Podcast. The podcast where we dream of sushi. <laughs> he wasn't joking about interrupting. I know. Rachel just said you weren't joking about in- interrupting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, bad son, bad. <laughs> She's scolding you. Okay, it's it is recording. Woo-hoo! I'm looking at it, and it is recording. That's I'm excellent. sure. Shut up, son. <laughs> yes, son. <laughs> I can say whatever I want, because unless you translate. By telling him. (laughs) You better watch out. I'm going to use that. That would be awesome.